Ladies and gentlemen, people of the internet, welcome back to yet another episode of Crypto Over Coffee. I hope you're doing well today. And if you're new here every Friday, well, Saturday today, I break down the latest news and hottest topics in the world of technology and cryptocurrency whilst drinking a cup of delicious coffee. Now, in today's episode, we're talking about Bitcoin and BTC's price, Polkadot, a bunch of other projects, and of course, our usual 404 Logic Not Found segment. But before we get into all that, let's kick it off with questions from the community on YouTube and Twitter like we always do. So I'm going to pull those up right now on the computer. And if you want one of yours answered, make sure you tweet me at Ashoshi4 or leave a comment down below and I'll get to those next week. And of course, if you would be so inclined, please do subscribe to the channel and hit the bell notification button down below so you get a heads up whenever I post new stuff here on the channel. Thank you so much in advance. And let's dive into these questions. Now, the first question is from Oliver Gra. You're the first person to give me some clear perspective on Google Cloud EOS. Thanks so much for watching. That was in last week's episode, if you're interested. Wonder if you could give some insights on your strategies to make crypto work for you. And I won't read this whole question. There's a bunch of things in here. I'll talk about my approach to doing this. So there are lots of ways to make your crypto work for you, make money for you, right? First of all, you should go and check that any projects you have on your hardware wallet, hopefully it's on your hardware wallet, Check if, if there are ways that you can stake that cryptocurrency. There are a lot of networks like Tezos, like now Zilliqa as well, Cardano, etc., that you can now stake to earn yield or rewards in return. A lot of people try and do this on exchanges because it's easy. I get it. Try and do it yourself. You're going to make more. That's one easy way. There are other networks or platforms like Crypto.com's app, like Celsius, like... Uh, BlockFi, etc., <clears throat> excuse me, where you can get the ability to earn interest on your crypto. So you basically lock it up in there. That's a custodial solution. Usually you have to deposit your crypto there. So yes, there is a little bit of risk, um, but of course you have to trust the platform that you're working with. And then you can earn yield on that cryptocurrency. So those are a couple of ways. Both of those different approaches are great. Try and stake non-custodially first. We can keep it on your hardware wallet. That's the best. The second would be using apps where you can make yield. Uh, and then the third, honestly, is you can actually try your hand in mining, right? There are proof of stake networks where you can actually become a stakeable operator where you can take the crypto you have, um, like in Cardano, where you can make that your pledge. And you can actually earn by actually doing the other side of it, not just staking, but facilitating block making on the network. So those are a few ways to do it. Hopefully it helps you. And uh, I'll maybe make a video about this in the future. Next question is from Biab. Which program do you use for crypto taxes? This is a great, great question. I use Cointracker.io. I will also say that there is a really, really close battle between Cointracker and Zen Ledger in my mind. I love both, um, but I use Cointracker.io because it, it interacts with more of the services that I use and it also interacts well with my accountant's systems. Um, but Cointracker is great. I use it to manage my portfolio, look at my crypto across all my exchanges and wallets. I also use it to calculate what taxes I will use. And also for instances where I might get paid in crypto for something uh, or I'm doing crypto giveaways and stuff, it helps me keep track of those things as well so that I can claim those things properly on my taxes. So I'll leave a link down below to Cointracker.io as well as Zenledger if you're interested in checking those out. Obviously, the tax deadline for this year is passed, but people will start probably planning for the April time frame, and it's a great way to just take the stress out of crypto taxes. So great question, and hopefully that helps. Next question is from Yan Novak. 
There are many oracles, Link, Band, DOS, Teller, DIA, etc. What bothers me is this. What if Link costs a thousand US dollars? Will it still be usable from a developer perspective or does the price make it unusable in many apps? Again, this is something I think a lot of people ask. And I think that based off of the pricing schedule in Link, the staking and the pricing or the bidding of actual jobs or job IDs, work orders on the network for data will be relative to a certain value, probably a value in Ether or value in dollars or basically a fixed value. And the number of link it takes to fill that order will be dependent on links price at that given time, if that makes sense. So just because one link is $1,000, it just means that instead of using today, a link is I think 10 to $12. I don't know exactly what it is, but let's say you have a $10 data job. It's a huge job. If link is a thousand dollars, you're just going to use a smaller fraction, one one hundredth of that link to actually facilitate that job, right? So you're just going to use less link for the same job. So I think that things are going to be more fixed that way. There might be instances where it's a little harder to get your hands on link, for developers, but I also think that there are plenty of testnet options. Uh, you can use something online to sort of dummy uh, the Chainlink ecosystem and your own testnet. You can even spin up your own testnet for Ethereum, spin up Chainlink, uh, a Chainlink Oracle contract on that network, connect up a stub of a node operator, and then you can actually test the whole thing without spending one cent. Um, and so that's probably what developers will do in the future. And uh, yeah, Chainlink on the mainnet should also have fixed costs. So hopefully that answers your question. Thank you, Yan. And last question of the day is from Andre. What's your favorite cold wallet and what do you value the most when you chose it? So I can't hone it into one, but my setup right now that I really like is I have a BC vault for long-term storage because it's a non-deterministic wallet. It just generates private keys individually for each wallet. I really like that. Um, the entropy options are really good. So I use that for sort of long-term storage. If I'm not going to touch it for a while, I put it on the BC vault. For my day-to-day -day usage of crypto, I use a Ledger Nano X. I like it because I can use it on my phone. I don't like being anchored to a computer. I don't like always having to have my computer, which a lot of wallets require. Uh, so when I'm running and gunning, I'm carrying stuff or I want to use it with Shapeshift, for example. I use the Nano X. I know people have mixed feelings about it, but I really do like it. And then finally, the Cold Card Mark III is the best Bitcoin wallet that you can use out there. It has all the features that you want for a, a true Bitcoin wallet. Of course, it's a unitasker. It only does Bitcoin stuff, um, but still, it's a fantastic wallet. So with those three wallets, I think it's a great setup and you get some good coverage for different cryptocurrencies. Uh, for a bunch of different use cases. So I will leave links to all of those down below if you're interested. And of course, thank you so much for your question. So let's dive into the news today. Now, for those who are new here every week in partnership with the folks at Kobo, the people who make the awesome Kobo Vault wallet, I'm giving away a Kobo tablet steel seed phrase backup in every episode from here on out. So you got to tune in on Fridays or again, Saturday in this occasion. And all you have to do to enter this random draw is to comment on the video down below. Comment anything you want and I'll pick a random winner every single week. And just for transparency, the product that I just showed you is only available in US, Canada and Europe right now. So if you win and you're from other regions, I will send you some Bitcoin instead. Folks have already taken advantage of that. The winner of last week's giveaway though is here on the screen. 
I'll show you the random draw. A big congratulations to the winner. And I do also want to mention that today's Q&A was sponsored by Centivate, the hybrid network topology project aiming to bring Web3 functionality without re-architecting the entire core of the modern web. Now that is out of the way, let's dive into the news section with the first story. And as is the tradition, let's kick it off with some Bitcoin price analysis and news. Now, for most of the week, Bitcoin had held strong as last week's highs of 11,500, 11,500 US dollars, that is, were pretty strong in support. Now, the most critical element one could look at is the overall volume of Bitcoin that's moved or shorts that have been opened after the seemingly never ending stream of bad news that we've seen the past week or so past two weeks, three weeks, even the last month. And towards the end of this week, we had a three or 4% drop fairly suddenly, which seemed to coincide with the news that broke about the OKEx or OKX exchange suspending withdrawals due to one of their main multi-sig key holders going MIA. And then also there was a pretty stark drop in the Dow Jones stock index to add to the negative price pressure. Now, if you compound this negative news cycle with the ripple effect of the BitMEX enforcement action a while back and the subsequent short contracts that opened on the platform as a result, one could see a bit of price action coming if you really looked. But again, I said it last week and I'll say it again this week, this feels different to me than years past. What I mean is that weeks of bad news would have broken Bitcoin's price 10%, maybe even more during periods of higher volatility in the past. But today it's rolling with the punches like a champ. And I don't know exactly why that is or what that means. And no, I'm not telling you that this is the start of the moon run or the best bull market we've ever seen. Okay, because I don't know. I'm not that guy. I don't know where the heck the price is going. But all I can say is that Bitcoin has behaved differently in relation to the news and to big whale events, etc. than it has in all the time that I've been following the price trends over the last decade now. Now, it's pretty wild. It's pretty wild. And I don't know why that is. If DeFi recovers and starts pulling altcoins upward, I could see Bitcoin riding that wave like it did the first time around during the first half of this year. So we will see what happens. In other news, one of the OG hardware wallet companies, Trezor, has just announced a fully integrated desktop application, so a native application that will replace the infamous Trezor Wallet Bridge web application. Now, many wallet providers are facing this similar challenge that Trezor has faced, and that is trying to protect users from phishing attacks, whereby hackers create fake but convincing versions of crypto websites or web services like Trezor's Wallet Manager, and then they trick crypto holders into exposing their seed phrase or sending crypto straight to the hacker's wallet. Now, by creating a native application, Trezor can, like Ledger did already, eliminate some of these attacks. But frankly, Ledger is a great example of how even doing the right thing can fail to prevent all of the attacks. Often users don't really realize that there is a desktop app and they will still fall for fake websites or Chrome extensions. I'm not saying this is a bad move or taking away from the work that Trezor is doing to try to protect its users more effectively, but more so reminding you if you're watching that you have to be diligent online and never punch in your seed phrase anywhere except for the screen of your hardware wallet without understanding the risks of doing so. So make sure you're always on the native application if there is one and validate that you are on the right extension if there is one. Now I actually wanna pivot back to Bitcoin for actually just a second here because I think this is a notable concept to be thinking about. 
Now, you may have heard that the multinational company MicroStrategy invested their resting or reserve capital into Bitcoin in large quantities, like 425 million bucks worth large quantity. Now, of course, the idea here is to protect the value of their capital, which is certainly a glowing endorsement of Bitcoin itself and for the purpose that it was built. Now, the CEO of MicroStrategy was even quoted saying, I didn't buy it to sell it ever indicating that this is a vote of confidence for a world where Bitcoin is a universally recognized means of trade and a stable one at that. Of course, other companies have followed suit in other ways or with other strategies, such as Cash App adding millions of dollars worth of Bitcoin to their balance sheet recently. And more will come, I think, in the years to come over the, I guess, prevalence of debasement of fiat currencies around the world. Now, this right here is one of the only indicators right now that I'm looking at to see how exuberant and insane this next bull run will be whenever it happens. I don't know when, but this could be a very helpful indicator. If companies are hoarding massive amounts of the supply with no intent to sell, that's mostly a good thing in my book. Of course, you have the caveat that you have now more whales that can dump on the market if prices go crazy. But again, that's par for the course. There are hundreds of whales already. Now, I'll be looking at this metric over the next couple years for sure to see where we're at and hopefully more companies jump on the bandwagon. Now, it's been a bit since we've talked about Ethereum and there's a good reason for that. It's honestly because there's not a lot going on, to be honest. And Ethereum 2.0 is still not here. That's, of course, annoying, but unsurprising overall. And people need to accept the fact that a functional smart contract enabled Ethereum 2.0 is at least two years away, but likely three years or more away in reality. Now, I'm okay with that, but it leaves room for other protocols to come in and take some market share if and only if they can grab developers and users with good user experience on both ends of the spectrum. Anyway, I digress. Ethereum's proof of work chain, the one where all the yield farming and stuff is going on and all the people are using today has faced some serious, serious gas price issues where it costs potentially tens or even hundreds of dollars to send a transaction with any relative level of computational complexity on the network. Of course, for those who don't know what it is, gas is the fee lever in Ethereum for users to pay for the work done to validate and mine their transactions. And the more smart contract operations that you do in a transaction, the more it costs in gas, which is convertible from Ether, the native cryptocurrency. Now think of it like the fuel that pays all the other people who have to do the work to execute your transaction on the network. Now what this means is that those with less ether to their name, people that are just getting into the space are likely priced out of ever participating in the Ethereum network right now. So an Ethereum improvement proposal or an EIP has been proposed to remedy this issue and we've talked about it on the channel before, but it's called EIP 1559. And essentially it would establish a base fee for all transactions, so a fixed base fee, which would subsequently be burnt from the supply with each transaction. So it would reduce the net inflation of Ethereum supply over time, which could be positive for price. Now, miners would still render profits from a, an extra tip or extra funding one would put on a transaction beyond that base fee so that they can get your transaction validated faster. However, this means that compared to today, miners would be significantly less profitable which of course means that they don't love this idea wholly. And also this concept is not necessarily battle tested in a live environment yet. So as an example, in the past year alone, if EIP 1559 were implemented already, nearly 1 million ether would have been burnt out of supply during operations and mining blocks. So 
The concept makes sense. One can make up the gap in profit for miners by enforcing greater upward price pressure of Ether in the form of drastically reducing the rate of supply growth over time. Reducing, reducing, whatever. But I'm unconvinced it would work though as advertised because we just don't have data to prove it. First of all, there would be incentive after that for collusion between miners to set the base fee in their favor if that makes it into mainnet, of course. There's potential attack vectors there. And regardless, something has to be done as the high gas fees for security and user experience are a serious, serious issue. Now, it is time for everyone's favorite 404 logic not found. And for those who are as of yet uninitiated in this little firecracker of a segment, I basically highlight notable tech-related fails or otherwise stupid moves in the world that need to get some attention. And speaking of attention, if you want to help this video get some attention from the YouTube algorithm, please do hit that like button and get subscribed because it does tell the YouTube robots that you're liking what you're seeing and you want to see more of it. Thank you so much for that in advance. And let's dive into it. Now, I want to preface this one by saying that I'm talking not from a perspective of a political party, not even really making this political at all, but rather trying to focus on a specific issue that spans across all parties and all governments all around the world. Cool. So we're clear there. But it seems that every month or two, there are new politicians around the world urging big tech companies in their regions to provide backdoors to all encryption on their platforms, both hardware and software. Of course, this is always pushed in the media under the guise of preventing crime, which again, always seems to be used to push ill-advised policies into effect without understanding these side effects. But of course, that's another story for another day. The concept though behind backdoors for encryption are that they are necessary to prevent crime and to find criminals. And without backdoors, law enforcement cannot do its job. That's the premise. And I would like to respectfully present an alternative viewpoint. Here's the deal. Criminals do in fact use things like WhatsApp, Facebook, Gmail, basically all the platforms, whatever they want, to send and receive messages and likely to plan out or orchestrate their illegal activities. However, encryption is not this fancy magical thing that cannot be implemented by someone with even a modicum of technical acumen. Google and Facebook, etc., they're not the only ones who can do this stuff. In fact, Building an end-to-end -end encrypted chat between two points or between a few people is really not difficult. The difficulty comes in doing it at scale for millions of users, which is why these platforms are popular. My point here is that you can force backdoors for encryption on these platforms, but all that will do is force the smart criminals off of the platforms to build their own platforms with a plethora of open source options that there are out there with relatively little money and effort. And then you're screwed. Why? Because when there are backdoors and encryption that can be used by the good guys, the bad guys always find a way to use that to their advantage. So by backdooring encryption on Apple, Google, Facebook, etc., you're putting billions of users' data at risk. Users who are not doing anything wrong and likely never will. It should be proof enough that even the ultimate spies on Earth, these tech companies who gobble up our data like it's candy, they are not even on board with this idea. It is, from a technical standpoint, a calamitous, calamitous concept. And there are other means by which to fulfill the obligation and operations of law enforcement without crippling the entire world's foundation of cryptographic security. So, 404, logic not found. 
Now in the world of Polkadot, there is an exciting new wrapped or tokenized Bitcoin project called PolkaBTC that's being built out by a company called Interlay. And towards the beginning of 2021, PolkaBTC will go live on its own parachain in the Polkadot ecosystem to offer DOT collateralized BTC pegged tokens that can be transacted freely within the Polkadot network. This opens up Bitcoin holders to accessing the many exciting applications and services that are being built and will be built on parachains within Polkadot. In essence, this is how it works. Basically, one locks up a certain amount of value to get a certain amount of Polka BTC. Then they can transact it at will, and when they want to withdraw it to regular Bitcoin, all they have to do is simply burn the Polka BTC tokens that they received, then they receive out the equivalent amount in BTC in return. It's a simple concept, but in some ways it's kind of hard to implement securely and with a good user experience. It has to be done right. Now, I'm very stoked to test this out in November or December during alpha testnet releases, and I do think that every network that's out there right now should have at least one, maybe more options for wrapped Bitcoin or tokenized Bitcoin so that the big Bitcoin holders out there that don't want to get out of Bitcoin can easily use that Bitcoin on some of these other networks when they want to. And they can just basically translate their Bitcoin holdings to wrapped Bitcoin and then move back out to BTC all the while being pegged to Bitcoin's price. Now, Zillica fans as well will be pleased with the recent successful launch of a non-custodial staking system on the network that can be used for on-chain governance in the form of voting by stake. This, of course, comes with a potential 6% rate of return on staked Zill for those who are indeed interested in doing so. Now, this news is exciting for a couple of reasons. First of all, I think that Zillica is among the more undervalued and underappreciated technology stacks out there in crypto. I think they are in many ways a victim of the massive hype cycle that brought prices to all-time highs in 2017 through 2018 and then were crippled by the crypto crash. Now, I think many people lost interest because of price, and that's a shame because price is not even one one-hundredth of the true value that this network could bring. Anyways, this Zillica staking mechanism essentially maps each 1,000 Zill one would stake to one GZIL, which is like governance Zillica, that can be used for governance voting operations on the network. And this should remove the need for the main foundation behind the project to make any unilateral decisions on protocol, because now it can be run by the community. Now, the sharding system, of course, the main scalability network portion of Zillica, still works as advertised, and I am a fan of it personally. And if you haven't looked at this project in depth at all, I'd urge you to do so. I'm working on revamping an entire technical deep dive that I did on the project a while back, trying to make it modern, and I hope to release that soon, time permitting. As you know, it's been a little crazy for me lately. I did also want to mention really quickly that Kobo Vault, the app that supports the Kobo hardware wallets and just the regular mobile app, now supports unstoppable domain resolution, adding to the ever-growing list of compatible wallets on which one can use human-readable domains to send and receive crypto. So you can now type in Unstoppable Domains on the Kobo Vault app and it will resolve to crypto addresses. Exciting stuff. And it's also great to see that Kobo is innovating, trying to work feverishly behind the scenes on a bunch of new features to make your experience working with their stuff much better. So stay tuned for more of that. And of course, the show would not be complete without talking about the winners and losers of the week. And I would like to assert that the biggest winner of the week is Bitcoin, which has somehow shed history and taken hit after hit after hit in the news cycle without dropping more than a few percentage points in price as a result. 
So it's very impressive to see a traditionally very news reactive asset holding strong like it has. Now the biggest loser of the week is DeFiNetly, the DeFi space. Sorry. And the seemingly never-ending stream of fake token presales, developer shares getting dumped on investors, rug pulls, and all sorts of other scams and shams that are degrading the overall innovation happening in the DeFi space at large. It's just a shame. It's a shame, and it could spell trouble for the longevity of this niche if there is not a way that the community can band together to try and avoid these scams. So of course, if you're watching, you're into DeFi, just please keep your wits about you. There are lots of scams out there and you never know what you're getting into, so please use good risk management. Now, of course, every single week I tell you this, but I actually mean it. I hope that you and your family have an absolutely wonderful and safe weekend. And if you do have some time to stick around, please do check out my top three VPN picks video, which I will link up here on the screen for you to watch if you're interested in wrapping your internet traffic in a nice layer of encryption. So thanks so much for watching and until next time, Cheers.